Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. This is the honorary Banta lecture. And we have Dr. Chaudhry, who's going to be presenting uh, to introduce her, will be Dr. Mark Lee. Before I ask Dr. Lee to come up here, just want to give a quick update. Uh, this week on the 7th will be the date that everyone is supposed to show proof of vaccination that works at Connecticut Children's. I'm very happy to say that we're very close to 97%, I think, the last I checked. And uh, I think by, by Friday, we'll have 100% compliance with what we recommend this uh, important piece of taking care of patients, doing safely, keeping everyone safe. So thank you for your efforts in making sure that everyone is properly vaccinated against COVID-19. This is really, really important. And in fact, uh, Connecticut now ranks number one in the country in, in terms of the number of infections, number one in the in the best side, not the worst side, uh, number of infections per 100,000. We're at 14 per 100,000, which is the lowest, the lowest in the nation. That's remarkable. And that has to do everything with vaccination, everything we're doing. So our ICUs, our emergency departments, at least from a COVID perspective, are doing well. We're very, very busy. Our, our teams are very busy with RSV, with other viruses, with mental health issues uh, for the kids, and which is all related to COVID in a, in a, in a certain way. So, uh, you know, my heart's go out to all the team members that are working very hard right now and within our units. It's been, it's been an incredibly busy August and September. Uh, so hang in there, stay put. You know, we, we will continue to support you as best we can, but I know it's been very, very difficult for everyone. For, with that further ado, I'm going to ask Dr. Lee to introduce Dr. Chaudhry, and then I'm sure we're going to have a fantastic lecture on Orthopedic Beyond the Bone, the new developments in hand and nerve care at Connecticut Children's Mark. Uh, thank you very much, Juan, and good morning, everybody. Um, this is the honorary Bantz lecture, and I just wanted to introduce with a little information about our namesake. And John Banta, as you well know, is the first division chief at uh, Connecticut Children's for orthopedics from 1996 to 2000. Before that, he was the chief at Newington Children's, 1992 to 1996. Um, and with him, he brought a uh, kind of keen interest in spine deformity as well as uh, uh, he went to medical school at Cornell. Um, he subsequently did a residency at LA, at LA Hospital and then went on to the Navy. Um, he established an excellent academic tradition as well as supporting our motion analysis uh, research um, at, at Connect Children. So I just uh, want to recognize Dr. Banta for his many contributions to our division. Um, today, I'd like to introduce Dr. Chaudhry, and Dr. Chaudhry um, is probably our uh, most well-trained orthopedic surgeon by far. Um, she uh, did medical school at Thomas Jefferson, subsequently went on to orthopedic residency at, at NYU, did a pediatric orthopedic uh, fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, um, at which point she joined us. Um, having felt that that was not enough training, she actually went on to a hand fellowship in Colorado and then uh, was part of a competitive fellowship at Ganga Hospital in India, uh, where she did uh, approximately about four to five months in uh, essentially nerve repair. Um, she is not only a fantastic partner, but has done just a wonderful job in advancing the care of the pediatric upper extremity in Connecticut Children's. And it really is my pleasure to introduce her. Um, to you. Um, and uh, today she'll be talking about uh, ortho beyond the bone, new developments in hand and nerve care at Connecticut Children's. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Chaudhry. Thank you so much for that kind introduction and for the opportunity to talk to you about hand and nerve care here today. 
So this talk is called Ortho Beyond the Bone. I'm going to try to abstain from showing you x-rays, although it's pretty hard for me to resist that. Um, so I'll go over the hand program. We treat some tumors, congenital hand differences, soft tissue injuries, and nerve pathology. And one of the things I enjoy best about the hand program is the multi-specialty collaboration that it encourages. Our amazing therapists here at Children's and in the community, um, our neurosurgeons, the neurology team, our rheumatology colleagues, and our PM&R colleagues. And that's been um, kind of one of the most enjoyable aspects. I have three learning objectives for this talk. <clears throat> to understand common hand soft tissue injuries, to understand options for nerve injuries, and understand the benefits of what we call wide awake surgery, which I will explain. So I thought I'd started out with some lumps and bumps. So there's a lot of lesions of the nail. Um, this kind of stripe you see, as long as it's not, you know, a marker, is a pathognomonic finding for subungual melanomas. So this would be something that really warrants biopsy or even resection, depending on the width of it. Um, very appropriate for a referral to dermatology, if that's available. Um, and that's in distinction to this. When you see a more ridged nail and there's no history of trauma, then we should be thinking more a subungual exostosis. <clears throat> and I apologize, there's a lot of um, a little bit gory pictures here, but <clears throat> when you remove the nail plate, then you can see this kind of bony lesion underneath. Um, here we go. I'll point this out right here. Kind of you see this extra bump of bone. And when that is resected, that is curative of this bumpy nail finding. <clears throat> it can occur in a much bigger way, um, sometimes on the toes, uh, which we jokingly call, you know, a dirty finger. Um, but you can see certainly this nail deformity here. And when you open up the uh, nail plate and look at the bone, you can see this kind of bony outpouching. And again, resecting that bone is going to be curative. So these are kind of benign bony tumors. There are, of course, benign soft tissue lesions. So this is showing you a cyst of the fourth extensor tendon on the back of a hand. Another cyst on the back of the wrist, which you see more commonly, the commonly known ganglion cyst. And of course, these cysts can be anywhere. In children, it's actually equally common to see it on the kind of volar aspect of the wrist right here. <clears throat> these are not inherently bad, so it's okay to leave that cyst alone. Uh, about half of them in young children will actually go away on their own. But certainly, if they're painful, they can warrant resection, and kids tend to do quite well with that. Um, not all of these bumps are kind of cystic, so the most common soft tissue tumor in the hand is going to be this top picture here, a giant cell tumor of the tendon sheath. This is one that we recently removed, and this is pretty typical of the appearance. You get this kind of multicolored uh, appearance to it. And then probably the second most common soft tissue tumor is a fibroma of the tendon sheath. Um, and again, these are completely benign, but they are locally aggressive, which is why these warrant surgical excision to try to prevent them from causing impending kind of pressure on the surrounding areas. Um, these are more kind of ostentatious lesions, and these are called pyogenic granulomas. I think pediatricians will be quite familiar with this, and they can be very pesky. They're very friable. They bleed often, and the more they bleed, people try to resect them, and actually the more you do to them, the more they tend to bleed. So it's one of those lesions where you kind of want to hurry up and do nothing. Sometimes, of course, they grow to huge proportions, as you see in the picture on the left. And then, of course, surgery is warranted to take care of these. Um, but that's a pretty typical appearance for a pyogenic granuloma. <clears throat> I want to distinguish these benign, relatively benign lesions from a bad tumor, right? So signs of um, a more sinister pathology are rapid growth pain, you know, constant pain, particularly at night, but anytime, 
overlying skin changes, as you see here, and a fixed non-mobile lesions. So it can sometimes seem that we, you know, become a little lax about our workup for certain lesions, but really we're always assessing for these findings, in particular, the um, if the lesion transilluminates or not. So those cysts that I showed earlier, if you shine a light through them, a, a light will shine right through it. This is an example of this lesion with transillumination. So when I hold a light up to it, you can see the light passes through the surrounding skin, but not through the lesion itself. And that is indicative of either a necrotic center um, or a solid center, which is indicative of, um, you know, pretty sinister pathology. So that would warrant a, an immediate referral to a specialist as well as a more aggressive workup with an urgent MRI. This particular case ended up unfortunately being an alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma in a child. <clears throat> we'll switch, switch gears now to congenital hand differences. Um, that's kind of the preferred terminology as opposed to deformity. Um, and this is showing you a case of an absent thumb. Um, this is along a spectrum of uh, radial longitudinal deficiency. You can also have a small underdeveloped hypoplastic thumb, but any condition where the thumb is smaller, less developed, or absent uh, has about a one in three chance of being associated with a syndrome that can have some uh, uh, devastating associations such as life-threatening anemia. So any child presenting with anything along this spectrum, I'm going to be referring them for a chromosomal assay for fragile chromosome, um, a cardiac workup, you know, potentially Holt or Ram syndrome, and all these kids that we see will get a referral to genetics. There can be thrombocytopenic absent radius syndrome, diamond black fan anemia, and certainly vactoral association as well. <clears throat> I wanted to highlight some of the surgical options. Um, certainly there's many different options. We can kind of borrow parts, you know, a toe to thumb transfer, for example, but my preferred um, technique is called a policization. So if you notice uh, with your hands, actually your thumb is kind of rotated towards your index finger. That's what helps us pinch and oppose. And so it's amazing the plasticity of uh, children's hands. So when there is no thumb, if a child is scissoring between the index and the uh, long finger, you can actually tell and they will try to make their index finger into a thumb. So what this arrow is pointing out on the right is that this index finger is actually already rotating towards that middle finger. It's kind of auto-policizing or becoming a thumb. And so we know that this child should do pretty well with that procedure. And so this is that index finger has been created into a thumb that is, oops, sorry, that is performed by um, kind of shortening this bone here to make it shorter, rotating it, and placing a skin flap to create a web space. And it looks remarkably um, unremarkable. It kind of looks like a thumb, and most people don't uh, immediately notice that there's only three lesser digits. Um, so this is showing you um, kind of both sides of that polycized hand, and this is showing you how the child can now grasp his water bottle um, with a more properly positioned thumb. If you notice, this child's other thumb, um, even though it's present, is kind of hypoplastic, and so he actually received a procedure on his other side called an opponent's plasty, where I borrowed some redundant tendons and was able to create a more viable thumb um, through his remaining thumb as well. So lots of options, um, you know, with uh, missing or absent thumbs. And just as you can have one too few thumbs, you can, of course, have one extra thumb. So this is an example of a what we call a duplicated mm -hmm. thumb. But I highlight here that it's not really duplicated as much as it's split. So this is the child's um, kind of contralateral thumb. And you can see here that each of the duplicated thumbs is kind of smaller. So in this case, you know, it was still well-developed enough that we could remove one of the thumbs and recreate some of the ligaments to create a relatively normal-looking thumb, although slightly, you know, thinner than the contralateral side. Um, 
And, you know, that procedure, I, I would point out, is mostly aesthetic. And when I tell p- families that a procedure is aesthetic, you know, they start to worry. They say, oh, is this plastic surgery? Is this not going to be covered by insurance or whatnot? But I point out that um, hands are really kind of apparent to the outside world. And it is very appropriate to do aesthetic surgery for the hands. Um, In fact, a lot of what we do in orthopedics is aesthetic. A large portion of spinal deformity corrections are aesthetic. It is very different than kind of cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic is more enhancement, you know, as these very clearly enhanced legs show you. So they're quite different um, kind of concepts. Um, In this case, it is a little more functional. So here you can see that the duplicated thumb, each thumb is at a more, you know, angular position. So that's going to impact function. They're not going to really function as one cohesive unit. So here we have to kind of make some decisions in how we want to reconstruct it. And we ended up kind of taking away one thumb and supplementing kind of the spare parts um, into the remaining thumb and straightening it out, as you can see in the pictures on the right. Um, full disclosure, this is short-term follow-up. So the thumb does look really nice. These do have a tendency to kind of bounce back into a little bit of a bent position. So um, we kind of, you know, warn patients of that so they have appropriate expectations um, for what's to come. Just as you can have extra thumbs, of course, you can have extra small fingers. So this is showing you a well-developed small finger. Uh, Surgery might seem as simple as kind of taking this finger just off, but there are actually some ligaments that need to be reconstructed, some neurovascular structures that need to be removed. And we really have to think about scar management. So we never want to create kind of straight scars in a growing hand because that can lead to contracture down the line. And I'll show you an example of that in a slide in a little bit. Um, so we create these flaps and that will create a result where we have kind of a, um, an apex, you know, a, a triangular flap on the side of the finger, and that's going to do better for them long-term. So that you can see, we've tried to recreate that kind of contour of the hand. Again, thinking about aesthetics, we really like this kind of bumpy contour to the side of the hand to match the typical anatomy. All different kinds of extra digits. So certainly they can be less well-developed. And I think um, a lot of you are seeing these in the newborn nursery or in your practices. And if it's a little thicker stock, right, then when you tie it off, instead of creating the desirable dry gangrene and eventual kind of falling off of the digit, you can get a wet gangrene. Because if you tie a thick stock, what you'll do is cut off enough pressure that you stop venous outflow, but you may not be able to stop arterial inflow. So when that happens, you can have a congested digit that actually will get infected and then our kind of our hands are forced to do, you know, um, an early surgery to remove that. Um, So this would be an example of a slightly thicker stock that might not be as amenable to tying off. A lot of them are, however, and that is a perfectly fine way to manage it. So um, I, like many of you, will do a suture ligature. But if possible, it's nice to supplement it with a clip ligature. And that's what you're seeing here, that kind of silver clip at the side. What a clip ligature does is it kind of everts the edges of the skin and it creates a flatter base. Um, That has been shown to produce a more aesthetic result of a kind of flatter border. You don't get that wart-like prominence as much. And it's also been shown to decrease neuroma formation. There was a really nice series of almost 800 patients that they showed out of Texas where they did this technique and and it gave really nice results. So that's my kind of preferred method if possible. If a neuroma does form, um, as you see here, you know, it can be a small wart-like prominence, as you see on the left, or it can be pretty significant and it can grow, as you see in the image on the right. Then certainly a neuroma resection is warranted, which is a simple surgery. 
In this picture on the left, you can see we've removed that skin paddle with the one attached digital nerve. Sometimes you even see two well-developed digital nerves. I don't know if you can make that out there, but there's actually two digital nerves there. Um, and they have a nice result with that. Um, extra digits can be anywhere, so they can be on the foot. Uh, so here, this is actually going to interfere with shoe wear. And so you can tell this is a quite young foot. So prophylactically, you know, before it causes a problem, we've removed that toe, reconstructed those lateral ligaments so that we don't have um, kind of any instability there. Um, some parents will choose to wait for it to be a problem, which is a completely, um, you know, acceptable approach. So here you can see what will happen if you leave it. You get this kind of, um, you know, ulceration blister forming. And again, um, they're going to have a good result with uh, surgery and trying to recreate those normal contours of the foot. Um, sometimes, in addition to the polydactyly, you have a polysyndactyly where there's no web space in between. So usually we take out the outer border. If you noticed on the thumbs, we were taking out the outer thumbs. With the pinkies, we're taking out the outer pinkies. But here we take the opportunity to take out the inner digit, and that way we can recreate a web space, which is not something we typically do electively in a foot, but since it has to happen anyways, um, that's what was performed here. And you can see kind of the skin flap from the back of the foot that's been brought in to the center. And if you notice here, um, there's no nail fold because the two nails are connected. So we've recreated a lateral nail fold here, which is something we do um, with any kind of syndactyly. Um, so syndactylies don't necessarily always involve the nails. So this is a hand and um, you can see separate nails. So this is a relatively simple separation uh, where we create local skin flaps, take a little bit of skin graft and recreate a web space. Um, they can be more complex. So in this case, you can see that the nails are connected. So this is another one where lateral nail folds need to be recreated, which is what we've done here. And we've recreated the web space. But you can see that the finger was a little crooked before and it remains crooked thereafter. So we warn patients and families that separating the digits does not make them normal. This particular family said, no problem, he will fit right into the family. So this is a beautiful picture that the family was nice enough to share with me of three generations of family members of theirs that all had various polysyndactylies um, after surgical releases at various locations and all of them comparing at a family reunion, which I thought was really special. Um, syndactyly can certainly be more involved. So one of the most complex types are um, associated with Apert syndrome. And this is where typically the entire hand is one paddle. It can actually be even more involved where there's a rosebud hand. Um, so this is going to, uh, you know, involve a lot of surgery. And what I wanted to highlight here is just how much surgery is involved. We're not even separating all the digits um, because the hand can't handle that all at once. But we really take the maximum amount of skin graft from uh, the elbow crease as well as the wrist crease. And that's one nice thing about kids. Because they don't get so stiff so fast, unlike adults, we're able to take so much skin graft from them allow that area to heal. And actually about three months later, you can go in and take even more skin graft from those same sites. Um, you know, skin will keep expanding as that. And so um, <clears throat> that's really nice from a reconstructive standpoint here. Um, we'll switch gears a little bit towards a different congenital difference. This is called macrodactyly. Uh, the most com there's different kind of origins of it. The most common origin is what you see here, which is a lipohematoma of the digital nerve. So I'll show you pictures of more digital nerves later, but here on the left side, you can see the normal caliber and girth of a digital nerve. And this entire kind of yellow structure here on the right is the enlarged digital nerve. 
So the bulk of this finger actually comes from the nerve itself. So we have to make some hard decisions. If we want to thin the finger out again for aesthetics for the patient, um, then it will create an insensate half of the finger, which is sometimes an acceptable thing for them to have a better looking and functioning finger. Some kids do remarkably different, uh, do remarkably well with large differences. So this is a patient that has obvious macrodactyly of the index finger, um, even of the thumb, but certainly overshadowed by the index finger. And yet they're asymptomatic. They are not bothered by their clinical difference. They have full range of motion. They have no pain. And so we treat the patient, not necessarily, you know, the pathology or the x-rays or, or what have you. And so um, for this patient, we just recommend observation and we keep an eye on them and follow them periodically to make sure that they know their options and are still comfortable with kind of a, a hands-off approach. <clears throat> I'd like to switch gears then again to talk about uh, patients with CP. So we recently um, published a review article on spastic upper extremity in children and uh, surgical decision-making because historically, you know, the upper extremities were not as well treated in children with cerebral palsy because we didn't completely understand all the options as much. As you can see um, from this chart in the, in the paper, um, and this is something I wrote with those colleagues in India when I went to do the nerve work, um, they were kind enough to share their knowledge about um, kind of CP patients with me. There are a lot of surgical options. And so we really employ one of our tools here that we are very blessed to have. Um, Steve, can I trouble you to play the video, please? <clears throat> if you can just click on it. So at Children's, we are so blessed to have this motion analysis lab, both for decision-making for, um, you know, how patients walk and uh, optimization of their function for sports and for this. So we've worked with our occupational therapy department. They have a set of kind of tasks that they, you know, in a protocol that we've created that they have the patient do. So in this example, they're asking our patient to kind of hold a button, to release a button. They'll try shoe tying. They'll try, um, you know, cutting paper. Um, we could play that one more time if, if that's helpful. And um, essentially with that, in addition to the evaluation in the clinic, I can kind of watch these videos um, as we debate kind of what is the best surgical package. Because as with everything, when you operate on one part of the limb, it kind of affects all the segments down the line. And so we really wanna make sure that we don't inadvertently take away function because a lot of the correction with surgery in CP is actually aesthetic, but it can also be function enhancing. What we really don't wanna do is take away function. So watching this video and taking care of this patient and seeing them in the clinic multiple times, we came up with a surgical plan. We treated the wrist, we took, uh, you know, the wrist is bent into flexion. So we have too much flexion. You know, we're very, we keep it very simple in orthopedics, too much flexion. We take away one of the flexors to a little extension. We move it to be an extensor. Um, you know, the thumb joint is often unstable. So we stabilized um, one of the joints of the thumb with a volar plate tightening. And then the thumb tends not to come out in kids with CP. Instead, it goes in, which is not helpful for grasp. You really want to be able to kind of open up that thumb. And so you have two extensor tendons in your index finger. We borrow one of them and make it into a thumb extensor so that you can really grasp a larger object. This is really impactful for children for, you know, riding a bike, holding a handle, something like that. And so it's a lot of surgery. Um, you know, the patient was kind of surprised at, at the recovery, but then they sent me this beautiful picture thereafter of um, the patient on the left holding a deck of cards for the first time and being able to play with her friend which just really touched my heart. Um, you know, we get a lot of patient messages, patient messages, and not all of them are this encouraging. So this was a really welcome message. Um, something a lot more simple to deal with with the tendons are trigger digits. So this is probably the most common thing I see in my clinics. Um, this is developmental. 
There's no lack of, lack of parental guilt over missed injuries, but we can reassure parents this is not a missed injury. Um, it just develops over time. They get this kind of catching with motion or the finger will be locked in flexion. And then they think that, you know, perhaps they missed a joint dislocation or something. But this is a mechanical problem. Um, there's just a tight A1 pulley. That's kind of the tissue that is on top of that clamp. And you can see when we remove that A1 pulley and we pull the tendon out, you can see that kind of thickening of the tendon to the left of the retractor here, right here. And that's the problem. That thickened part of the tendon just can't slide underneath that tight pulley. And that's why surgery is needed. Um, it's remarkably effective. They have a pretty quick recovery. And the nice thing is we're able to hide the incision in one of the patient's creases. When you operate and kind of um, hide an incision inside a crease, you get a really nice long-term scar, you know, a very kind of inconspicuous scar. This patient actually needed surgery on their other side when this problem developed. So I had the opportunity to have five-year follow-up of their incision. So in, in all surgery, but particularly in hand surgery, we're very cognizant of um, trying to make incisions as aesthetic as possible. <clears throat> when a trigger finger occurs in other digits beyond the thumb, so for here, you're seeing it in the small finger, it's a lot more complicated and abnormal or multiple anomalies are actually kind of the rule, not the exception. So this is showing you a case, you know, you have two different flexors of your finger. On the left, you are seeing the robust FDP tendon that bends your fingertip. On the right, you're seeing your FDS tendon. Usually it has two slips like that. In this case, there was only one and it was kind of scarred down to the other tendon. So we had to release all that scar tissue and then they did well with that. Um, but we have to keep an open mind about surgical plan for these patients. And then we'll switch gears and talk about trauma. So Seymour fractures are, um, or any nail bed injury are actually quite common. Um, I've actually talked about them before in a grand rounds, but I thought a couple issues warrant um, mention here. So when they present late to us, um, they can be kind of subtle. You can see this just kind of looks like an elongated nail, but when we clean it off with peroxide and certainly when we take it to the OR, we can see the extent of the damage that all this nail is over the skin. The skin is actually tucked under the nail and that's going to be a problem. When we open it up surgically, you can see how much of an empty space there is here. And if we don't treat that um, in an appropriate way, then a pretty bad infection can form. And so not with all nail bed injuries, but in particular with a Seymour injury where the bone flexes and then the skin goes under and then it folds back on itself, it's important to have a high degree of suspicion for this. If it's missed, and it often is particularly in the feet, you know, you can get the same issue, then you can see what's happened here. An infection has developed. And when we open it up, there's just been kind of a lot of destruction of the bone. And so it's ideal to treat these acutely before something like this happens. And then just kind of a public service announcement for all fingertip injuries. Um, it's pretty popular to use Coban, which is this wrap that is kind of sticky. And, you know, we're just trying to do the best for patients. We don't want these wraps to come off. But uh, what will happen is either we put it on too tightly or we put it on at an appropriate tension and then the finger swells thereafter. Or we put it on appropriately, but then the parent, it'll come off and then the parents, you know, they buy the nice dressing because they want to replace it in a nice way. And the fingers, you know, if you've ever had something that's on too tight, like a tight glove, it, after it's initially painful, it will actually be completely numb. And so, you know, uh, families won't realize that the fingers are actually dying. And there's multiple series that have been published about fingers that needed amputation after Coban use. So that's my kind of public service announcement. I would abstain from using Coban almost ever. Or if I do use it, I kind of really lay the crepe for families not to um, kind of replace it on their own.
Um, <clears throat> continuing with the theme of injuries, this is showing an extensor tendon laceration. You can see it's a pretty small laceration, actually. It doesn't look like it was very deep or involved, but you can see the droopy thumb. So the anatomy of the back of the hands is such is that most people are just kind of skin and bones on the back of the hand. And so even a relatively superficial laceration, as long as it goes all the way through skin, you kind of have to assume that an extensor tendon was cut unless proven otherwise. And that was the case here. Um, you know, the picture on the right is showing you kind of the gap in the extensor tendon because tendons, of course, are attached to muscles. So the minute they're cut, they contract. And that's why they're never going to heal on their own. So cut tendons would never repair on their own, would never, you know, repair themselves on their own. And that's why a high degree of vigilance is warranted and surgery is often needed. And the sooner we do surgery, the more we can do a repair as opposed to a more involved reconstruction. So lacerations on the palmer side of the hand, in contrast to the back of the hand, but on the palmer side, the, you know, the palmer skin is a little thicker. And so you're not as likely to cut a flexor, you know, a tendon because um, your flexor tendons are a little more tucked in, although certainly we need to watch out for that. But what I want to point out here is that lacerations or burns or even surgical incisions that are incorrectly placed, if they cross these flexion creases, they can cause scarring um, in a growing hand, in any hand, but particularly in a growing hand. So here you can see the scar that was symptomatic. It's an easy thing to treat, certainly. Um, you know, we did a, a little Z-plasty or local tissue flap here, um, which is a nice treatment for it, but obviously it's best to avoid it if possible. Um, and then uh, continuing on the theme of tendon injuries, this is a case report we recently published that really highlights some things unique to pediatric hand care. So in the picture, this is a patient that kind of, you know, had a, a pretty violent forearm fracture and had full range of motion. So there was no missed injury here. And then you can see later on, almost like over a year after the injury, that you can see how tight this flexor tendon is, right? That the rest of the fingers can extend, but that index finger cannot. And what's happening here, it's a little hard to tell, but this is the bone and the bone has healed. And because of how well children heal, the, the healing bone actually went around a flexor tendon and encompassed it over time. So this clamp I'm holding here is the flexor tendon that we have extracted from the bone itself. And then in the picture on the right, you can see they have improved extension. Not perfect as the editors pointed out, thank you, but, uh, but quite improved. Um, <clears throat> Certainly, we can have much more involved tendon injuries. So this is a case of a small child with a degloving injury after a motor vehicle accident where they were ejected from their car seat. And here you can see the extensive loss of soft tissue, and there's just no extensor tendons there, along with this overlying kind of skin defect. So, um, you know, we did an initial debridement. Again, talking about the excellent uh, multi-specialty collaboration here, I worked with my plastic surgery colleagues, Dr. Hughes, um, to put an Integra kind of, you know, synthetic skin graft on here or, you know, bovine skin graft. And then once that was mature, I took a full thickness skin graft from the elbow. And you can see, I just wanted to highlight how much skin we can take and how big of a defect that is. But look at how nicely it closes up. So that's a really big benefit in children that we can take these full thickness skin grafts, not leave them a big scar and get actually pretty large areas of skin coverage. Certainly this child will later need um, kind of extensive extensor tendon reconstruction, but it's a nice option for initial coverage. All right, I've abstained from x-rays so far, but I really can't help myself. So <laughs> this is actually, it, it highlights a couple soft tissue principles in my defense, um, but this is an interesting case report we just published. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Lee, actually pinned this fracture very appropriately 
And again, there was no missed injury. All the tendons were working. But what happens mostly in adults, which is what makes this um, case unique, is that when you get this healing, you, of course, have a regular bone on the back where it's healing. And again, I mentioned those extensor tendons are very thin, very superficial. So those thin tendons, as you move, will kind of rub by the rough kind of bony surface that it, of the healing bone. And this caused an attritional tendon rupture weeks out. You know, so their bone was well healed. Everything was working. They felt a sudden pop and they can't move their thumb. Again, you see this kind of droopy thumb. So naturally, Dr. Lee kind of recognized this right away. And we were able to do a, you know, we cannot do a tendon repair in that case because there's a large area about, you know, several inches long of tendon kind of um, irregularity. So we can't repair that. And so instead we do a reconstruction. So I wanted to highlight our uh, wide awake surgery program here. And so what you can see is I have numbed this area up with, you know, a local anesthetic that includes epinephrine and that creates kind of a bloodless field. Um, and so with that, we've injected multiple areas in this patient. So this patient is completely awake and we do the initial exploration. We confirm that the extensor tendon is ruptured. You can see it's kind of thickened and irregular. And then from a different incision here, we actually harvest the extensor tendon of the index finger. I mentioned earlier that there's two extensor tendons here. There's actually a lot of spare parts that we have um, that can be, you know, sacrificed um, without, uh, without causing undue deficits. And so here we borrowed it from the index finger, and then you can see it's quite long. So we're able to tie that into the thumb extensor. So again, while in the OR, this patient's awake. And so soft tissue tensioning is really key for, um, for tendon procedures. And so in the past, we would kind of, you know, a tourniquet alters the soft tissue tension. So we'd have to factor in the fact that there's a tourniquet, the fact that the patient's asleep with an anesthetic, which relaxes the muscles. And we would have to almost do an educated guessing as to how to tension these tendons. But when a patient's awake, there's no guesswork involved. So I put one stitch in and I can say, hey, make a fist. So I know I'm not tying it in too tightly. I can say straighten your fingers. And so I know that it's tight enough that it can create full extension. These are motions that I cannot recreate, right? That requires active muscle contraction. So it is so reassuring to the patient. And imagine the patient, right? They're going to have a great rehab because they've seen their finger move right away before it's in a bulky bandage or a splint that's protective. So it's a really nice way of um, kind of taking care of patients. So um, this technique is called Wallant. It's well described in the adult literature. Um, Wallant stands for wide awake, local anesthesia, no tourniquet. So there's no IV, but really the key is that there's no tourniquet because a lot of pain um, during limb surgery actually comes more from the tourniquet than even your surgical incisions. And that's why they don't even need sedation because if they're sedated, then they get a little disinhibited. They can't listen to your instructions such as move your hand or stop moving, you know, um, many, many benefits. Patients don't have to fast. Studies have shown that they have less pain. They have better rehab afterwards because they're more involved in the process. And um, not to get too touchy feely, but there's a really nice doctor patient relationship then um, there's, you know, I see one or two patients every 15 minutes it's probably the only time that I get a dedicated kind of 30 minutes to even two hours with my patient. And so we talk, you know, we joke around sometimes, you know, the corny jokes are too much and then they switch to maybe listening to their AirPods, which is fine. Um, but it's, it's been a really nice thing to offer. And especially during the time of COVID um, it limited, you know, how many intubations we needed to do. So less aerosolizing intubations and also from a resource utilization standpoint, less personnel in the OR, you know, less materials used, and it's a lot more environmentally friendly as well. So this is showing you 
Um, you know, traditionally we didn't use epinephrine on the hands, but that's actually been shown to be quite safe when used in, in a safe way. And here you can see I've uh, numbed up and um, created a bloodless field on the palm. This is to remove a uh, benign tumor that was causing finger flexion, one of those fibromas I think I showed you earlier. Um, and, you know, to anybody that would say, well, a lot of children can't handle this, I would show you this case. And this is an 11 year old female. Um, Steve, can I trouble you to pay, play the image on the left or the video on the left or, or either book? And, um, and this 11 year old female, she is completely awake. And this is a really interesting case um, where there was a sudden injury and then the patient could not make a fist. The hand, that one finger, that middle finger would just stay extended. And this was a complete mystery. The patient had two good quality MRIs. They had dynamic ultrasounds. Um, they had a second opinion even, and nobody could figure out anatomically what was going on with this patient. Um, I reached out to multiple colleagues and asked, but they really couldn't handle, I mean, a finger that just stuck out and they couldn't even make a fist. So we did this um, exploratory surgery, and this is one of the huge benefits of wide awake surgery. So you can see here, I have kind of cut that finger open, you know, a good amount, and I'm looking for anything abnormal and I didn't see it. And so I'm asking her to move. She's still not quite making a fist, right? And so I, I, you know, uh, I know then that I haven't done enough to fix this problem. If the patient was asleep, I would not have been able to necessarily determine that. Steve, can you play the video on the right, please? And um, it's kind of longer. Can, do you think maybe you could click on like the middle of the video or something like that on there? And so in the image oh, on the right, fingers? you can see I've extended the incision to go all the so way to the tip of them. the finger, removed any hand. scar tissue now between the, the two hand. tendons. All your fingers. And again, she's completely awake for this, following instructions, um, making a fist. And now you can see um, she can actually make a full fist, keep go. a full keep fist. Uh, it's just a little hard to give her instructions while she, you know, she, really of course, it's fist. numb. Um, but, you know, her other fingers are not numb. She can feel the instruments touching her. But with the proper kind of so counseling, a lot of patients can actually handle this remarkably well. And this had a really successful fist. result that I don't think I could have achieved um, without the patient being awake. So it's just a really nice technique that we've been able to use in children. <clears throat> we can do actually quite large surgeries under Wallant technique. So here you can see, um, if you can play the video on the top, please. Um, on the left, you can see the anesthetized area. Um, you can see where the epinephrine has taken effect. And do you see that kind of subluxating structure? That's the ulnar nerve that is kind of bouncing over this medial epicondyle in, um, in a young woman. Mm -hmm. And if you play the image on the bottom, please, um, we've actually done a transposition of the nerve. And now you can see it's resting on, in front of that medial epicondyle. So that nerve is not going to bother her again. And we've held it in place with this sling of tissue. And I'm showing with my finger that um, there's plenty of room for that nerve to breathe. So again, these are all really nice things to kind of ensure a good surgical result. Um, so this is a nice segue to talk about our peripheral nerve program in general. So this is something um, that Dr. Martin and I work on together. Um, what you just saw was a case of nerve transposition. A lot of surgical options for nerve pathology. Here you're seeing an example of neurolysis. So this is a patient that had a sudden foot drop. Um, we knew that there was a problem with the perineal nerve, as with most foot, foot drops, and they didn't recover after four months. Certainly, you can wait longer, um, but it is a nice and kind of quick recovery. When you do a neurolysis, here you can see the hamstring tendon, and right underneath, you can see this perineal nerve, nice and white, nice and released, and immediate resolution um, where the patient's foot drop resolved immediately, which is a really nice result. This is showing you, that's called an external neurolysis. This is showing you um, external and internal neurolysis. So this is a forearm and here's the bone and you can see the median nerve kind of stuck down to it. When we release that median nerve off the bone, you can see this kind of damaged area. 
So the textbook kind of um, answer for what to do about this is to cut out that area and repair it together. But I didn't have the heart to cut out a nerve that is nice, you know, nice and intact. So this is the benefit of working with Dr. Martin, that together we can make decisions um, during surgery. So what we did was an internal neurolysis. We opened up the casing of the nerve. You can kind of see the individual fascicles traversing here. And with just that removal of scar tissue, with stimulating the nerves intraoperatively, we could tell that they worked and we left it alone. And this patient recovered full median nerve function, which was um, a really nice result. Um, in addition to neurolysis, we can do direct nerve repair. So I mentioned when you have lacerations to the palm, you often don't cut your tendons, but you do often cut uh, digital nerves. So this is showing you kind of that internal architecture of the digital nerves. Um, just like tendons, as soon as you cut a nerve, they kind of retract, which is why a cut nerve will kind of never repair itself. And so here, um, we've kind of trimmed the nerve back to healthy tissue. You can see nice individual fascicles and performed a direct nerve repair um, using a microscope. If there's too much of a gap, then we fill it in with graft. So this is showing you graft to fill in the gap and what it looks like after. This is actually graft that we take from the patient's own wrist. So on the back of your wrist, you have a nerve that goes into your wrist joint itself, and it actually gives uh, you know pain and sensory feedback from the inside of the wrist. Sometimes we actually kill this nerve just for the purpose of pain control in the wrist. So it's very expendable. So here we've taken that nerve and used it as an intervening graft. Um, this is showing another example of doing that when there's a really large gap. And this patient actually had really nice return of two-point static discrimination um, sensation on their finger, um, which is kind of as good as it gets in terms of results for this. Not all of them do that. If they don't want that additional scar on the back of their hand, then certainly we can use uh, processed nerve allograft, as you see in this case. Um, much bigger nerves can be lacerated. So this is an example of an ulnar nerve laceration. In the picture on the right, you're seeing a huge zone of injury. And so to do a direct repair for this, we really need to utilize several tools. So we did a submuscular transposition where we give the nerve a shorter path to traverse. But it'll take a while for that nerve to recover because it has to recover all the way from the elbow um, into where it innervates the muscles of the hand. So what we can do is what we call a supercharged uh, transfer. And so this is where we take another expendable nerve. So we're taking what's called the anterior interosseous nerve. This is a nerve that controls um, a small muscle here that you don't necessarily miss if we, if we um, kind of take away the function of it. And you're seeing that small nerve right here. We don't transfer into the ulnar nerve because um, there's a size mismatch, as you can see here. But what we do is kind of plug it into the nerve at the level of the wrist, and that kind of supercharges the recovery because now the recovery starts here. And while it's recovering from here, you have some input from the wrist. And so here you can see we've opened up the ulnar nerve, done an internal kind of dissection of the nerve, and plugged in this little branch of the anterior interosseous nerve into the side of that ulnar nerve. Here you can see that nerve laying over and tied into the side of it. And so it's a really nice option to kind of enhance um, our nerve repairs. So a lot of tools we can use. Um, so again, these are cases I'm doing in conjunction with Dr. Martin in our brachial plexus program. We have a monthly clinic um, to see brachial plexus and other peripheral nerve patients um, where they see both neurosurgery and ortho at one time. Um, I work with an athletic trainer who will teach the patient home exercises right away. And that way families can get started on exercises without delay. Um, and we like to refer to OT quite early. And of course, if needed, surgical management. So brachial plexus um, is a whole talk in and of itself, but I just kind of wanted to highlight 
um, you know, that we do some of these cases and, um, and the uh, different surgical planning for each of these cases. Uh, we actually have a, a Visio, um, a clinical pathway that is up on our website, mm -hmm. if anyone's interested for um, kind of the path for referral. Um, just as there can be brachial plexus palsies of birth, there can also be traumatic brachial plexus palsies. If um, the entire plexus is injured, as in this case, as you can see on the MRI, then we have to take nerves from outside the plexus and plug them in. So here, what you can see is that we've taken nerves from underneath the rib and plugged them in to the nerve that actually bends your elbow. Um, again, big size mismatch, as you can see here. This is the input from the nerves from the ribs and this is where they're going, but um, it's enough usually to give patients some elbow flexion, which is really meaningful in an otherwise limp arm. So this is my last case example. Um, you guys have seen a lot of gory pictures, but it just highlights the marriage between um, all the soft tissue procedures we can perform. So this is another patient with a foot drop. Um, on the left here, you can see healthy nerve, and here the blue arrow is showing you a knot. So this is actually a suture that was used to repair a meniscus that went right through the nerve, and then you can see deteriorated yellow nerve thereafter. And so that's through the common perineal nerve. Um, part of the nerve though, the superficial perineal nerve is working. So we would never wanna injure that. So we do an internal dissection of the nerve into its deep perineal parts and its superficial perineal parts. We cut out only the deep perineal part um, that is injured and then did a direct repair over here. Um, and the patient actually recovered good tibialis anterior function. They continued not to have toe extension, though, because we got to them kind of late. And so then we were able to do a tendon transfer procedure where we borrow, again, an expendable donor, so the posterior tibialis tendon. We split it into two and put half into extending the big toe, the other half mm -hmm. into extending the lesser toes, which allowed this patient to return back to softball brace-free, which was a really nice result. Um, so that's a lot of different um, kind of pathologies that we covered. So just to review the three learning objectives. Um, it was to understand common hand soft tissue injuries, um, recall that ruptured tendons require repair, reconstruction, or transfer, um, many options for nerve injuries, a completely cut severed nerve will never heal without surgical repair, which is why timely referral is important, as well as for brachial plexus injuries, um, and to understand the benefits of wide awake surgery, less pain, less cost, and resource utilization, much improved soft tissue balancing, rehab, and the doctor-patient relationship. Um, in summary, ortho is more than fractures, although, full disclosure, we love our fractures. Um, <laughs> and our hand program includes uh, work on tumors, congenital hand differences, soft tissue injuries, and nerve pathology. And it's really, really ripe for multi-specialty collaboration. And um, that's it. I thank you for your attention and for this opportunity to share this information with you today. Thank you, uh, Sonia. That was absolutely spectacular. Um, it, you know, it's just a beautiful field, and we are so, so lucky to have you here, Connecticut Children's, uh, such an expert in, in this field. So congratulations on all your great work and amazing presentation. Uh, we have some comments and questions uh, from your colleague, Dr. Pierce. Uh, thank you, Sonia. We're so lucky to have you here at Connecticut Children's. So there, that's a comment. Uh, from uh, my colleague, infectious disease, are three comments and questions from Dr. Coenavo. Uh, great lecture. Will you please explain when is the best time to refer an infant who has isolated class thumbs, otherwise no CP findings? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, so class thumbs should, so the first thing is to confirm the diagnosis. So there's no age that is too early, although there is certainly no urgency. So hypoplastic 
thumbs can masquerade as class thumbs. And as I mentioned, a hypoplastic thumb would want very early referral to rule out some of those um, life-threatening anemias. But for a true class thumb, um, those are patients that, um, you know, we don't understand why, but that extensor tendon just doesn't kick in for a while. So that would be somebody that um, doesn't specifically need treatment beyond some home stretching um, until um, a much later age. So I think, you know, six months to one year is an appropriate time for those patients, but certainly nothing is too early, but there's just no rush for those. Um, If we're going to do an extensor tendon transfer for those patients, I wait until they're at least two years or older because for some reason, we'll just see that extensor tendon kick in later. And as good as, um, you know, our results are, of course, if we can achieve them with spontaneous uh, use of the hand, that's always better. Another question from Dr. Cohen. Um, Active teens when playing with big balls can get jammed fingers. What should be the proper evaluation and timing? That's also another great uh, question. You know, on the one hand, it's hard to tell uh, parents of active kids that every, you know, boo-boo finger that you need to bring them in. But the reality is some of the injuries with long-term implications that are unique to children. So, for example, subcapital or phalangeal neck fractures, as well as unicondylar fractures, which are a similar fracture that goes into the joint, they are really subtle. They just look like a little bit of a jammed finger. Same thing with like scaphoid fractures. They can be remarkably subtle, and yet they have long-term consequences if not recognized and treated in a very acute fashion uh, because those can sometimes progress to avascular necrosis. So that's why early x-rays are quite important for these jammed fingers. The most common thing, if you don't see a fracture or if, you, if it's a non-operative fracture, when you have a jammed fracture, uh, a jammed finger is a volar plate injury. And that is something that is not going to need treatment. It's just going to need early range of motion because actually the most common problem with that is over-treatment and stiffness. So, but it's hard to differentiate that in a swollen finger that's painful. It's really hard to differentiate those fractures that actually might warrant surgery versus um, just a jammed finger that is a soft tissue injury. And so that's why I think for those early referrals, always good. There's a ton of access with, you know, um, at least in our ortho clinics, we do same day appointments, walk-in appointments, and then we have the urgent care, of course. So it's, it's not challenging to get them timely referrals and x-rays. And I think it's a good thing. Great, thanks. Uh, from Dr. Akshadi, what is the best approach for brachial plexus palsy caused by root avulsion? Oh, so that's a great question. So it, it's a little different depending if it's on an infant um, with a birth palsy versus a traumatic palsy. But in general, um, if there's avulsion injuries, that is not something where we can kind of graft over a neuroma because there is no neuroma. So the very first thing is in recognizing it early. And in those kids, as early as three to six months of age, um, we would actually want to intervene surgically where we borrow donors from outside the plexus. So that could be intercostal nerves, that could be spinal accessory nerve. And these are things that are not going to cause huge donor deficits, and we can plug them in to targets to at least provide some motor um, function to the extremity. Uh, so those are, are also patients that should be referred early. Uh, from Dr. McGilpin, can the general pediatrician use a clip in the treatment of small, narrow-based extra digits? Absolutely can, yes. I would just warn you from experience that they often fall off. I really love blaming my residents on that, but then they fell off even when I applied them. And so uh, all you need is the clip applier, um, which, you know, we ordered for our clinic. So it's definitely available. And then you just need to, um, you know, keep handy those clips. So in a very morbid way, I actually walk around with them in my work bag and you could too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he wants to know where can you buy those clips, I guess. It was ah, I see. Yeah, they're, they're just available <laughs> in the medical um, supply things. If you have an interest for your clinic, I can certainly find out where we ordered them because we ordered them relatively recently, and I'm happy to give you that information. 
Great. Uh, Sonia, the question about meta metacarpal fractures and which ones do you, you know, if it's in the shaft, let's say a metacarpal shaft fracture, which ones do you intervene? Where do you, what do you do with those? So actually really interesting. Uh, there's actually been so much information that's come out recently, really nice randomized control trials, which we don't often see in orthopedics um, for, uh, for metacarpal fractures. So if it's a metacarpal shaft, then we can tolerate certain degrees of angulation. And it depends on which finger it is. So we can accept more in the more mobile kind of ulnar metacarpals and a lot less in this finger. If you think of, so, you know, boxers fractures, we have good randomized control trials showing us even if they're angulated up to 90 degrees, they're going to have full function. You know, we have studies in military recruits showing no lack of function, but that is very specific to boxers fractures, which are the fifth metacarpal neck. Instead, if you have a fracture in a more kind of radial direction, so for example, even 10 degrees of angulation of this second metacarpal, if you notice where do weightlifters kind of get callosity, right, on their palms, if you grab like a thicker object, like a pull-up bar, you get callus right here. Because even 10 degrees of a bend will give you what we call a head and palm deformity. That metacarpal head will be very prominent within your palm, and that is annoying. So those should be fixed. And any degree of malrotation. In a different talk with a ton of x-rays, I show you an example of a metacarpal that looks not, not at all displaced. You know, anybody would look at that and say, no problem, you know, buddy tape. But actually the finger is rotated, you know, to a very significant degree. Rotation never remodels. And so that's why as much as we joke around that we just look at x-rays, we always evaluate the patient very carefully. We ask them to kind of bend their fingers up like this, because if you see that rotation, that is incredibly annoying for patients, that scissoring of the fingers. And that is something we correct surgically. So we're almost never performing closed reductions on them because they're just too unstable. They don't hold. It's really allow them to heal in their position or indication for surgery, in which case we stabilize them with temporary pins. The concern with uh, tendon rupture, if they have a certain angle? You know, you would think they would, but it just hasn't borne out. And we know from so many malunions that that doesn't happen. What's interesting is that in the hands, in the adult hand surgery literature, people use an extensor lag, you know, so a finger that just won't come up as an indication for surgery, but everyone with a broken bone will have an extensor lag. So I think that's only an indication if you're trying to do a ton of surgery, which uh, fortunately, you know, we try to just do appropriate surgery. So, um, you know, the extensor tendon is not as much of an issue, although you will read that in textbooks, but it hasn't really borne out. Well, again, thank you for an, uh, an outstanding presentation. Uh, we all learned a lot, uh, you know, some great participation. We had over 130 people that joined for this grand round, so that's great. So congratulations on your great work. Uh, I want to say thank you to everyone who joined us. Um, I believe next uh, Tuesday we have Dr. Gary, uh, Mr. Mr. Lapidus and Dr. Brendan Campbell uh, on injury prevention. So join us for that grand rounds. And we'll see you again this Friday for Ask the Experts. We have Dr. Uh, Melissa Santos who will uh, give us a whole presentation of the effects of, of the COVID pandemic on, on psychiatric uh, and psychological issues with children, which is a big issue right now. So take care. We'll see you on Friday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.